Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Eee! Rolling, take one. Sorry. I was being a horse. Is it going to be all right? And welcome to All Through a Lens. This is the podcast about film photography where we discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Vanya. And I'm Eric. On this week's show, we're going to be giving a call to Megan Carson, a tintype photographer who also travels. We'll take another quick shot at the Holgi 6 thing. We got some stuff wrong and we'll catch up to speed on that one. We've got zine reviews, some more fun. Plus, we'll tell you about Julia E. Toole, a little-known photographer of Native Americans who was one of the few who were granted access to ceremonies typically barred to white people. But first, Vanya, how the hell are you? Well, I am transitioning, or I guess just getting comfortable with the fact that um, we will be in lockdown again, and there's nothing I can fucking do about it. (laughs) we're, We're suffering the repercussions from a lot of selfish people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just been so odd this whole time, you know, after like uh, elections and then just like <laughs> the tantrums and the denial and the more denial and the crazy people. It's just nuts. It's so. nuts and expected. And 2020 <laughs> needs to just die. <laughs> <laughs> it really does. I'm sure everybody feels like that. On the other hand, Yes. We'll say that 2020 has been a very big photographic year for me. It has. And I have another first for this year. <laughs> you do. I know you do. I know you're excited to talk about it. Please tell me about this. <laughs> I was invited to get a portrait done by a friend who actually shoots with a Nikonos 2. And it was a wet plate portrait. Ooh. And I was even able to take a picture myself which was really awesome. And now I'm super stoked. And I know I keep saying that I'm going to retire and (laughs) I'm going to just shoot wet plate. But I'm like, well, maybe I don't really need to wait that long. No. So, yeah, I'm so excited. It was just simply amazing experience. And I cannot wait to do it again. So I'm probably going to start with just getting some books and reading a lot about it and, you know, see what happens in the next couple months. (laughs) Yeah, I think winter would be a good time to do that, honestly. Yeah. You know, yeah, I really just want to like, get myself well versed with like, you know, how dangerous are these chemicals? What are the options I have? And he, um, he was like so helpful with that stuff too. He showed me some of his shortcuts that he's been taking to make things a little bit safer and also a little bit cheaper, which uh, I know that I could probably um, ask him and bother him anytime. And he would be super helpful. I think that when you find someone that's like extremely excited about photography, as much as you, you, we, you literally, it's just like, this like tornado of like words and you know like I was we were bouncing around his studio he was showing me like cameras and film and you know I I brought like you know because when (laughs) when you go to someone's house you either bring them wine or film right and I brought (laughs) film so I know he still likes to shoot 35 so I brought a bunch of neopan like expired stuff for him and he was super stoked about it so oh awesome um yeah um 
Because, yeah, you know, you you meet people like, oh, you're a photographer, but you have to kind of watch yourself to not, like, completely, like, kill them with your words. Yes, yes. Or to be killed by them (laughs) with their words, yes. But, yeah, it was just kind of fun to just talk photography. Sure. Get some portraits. And, again, like, it's so weird to, like, be in front of a camera. And then also, too... When you get your portrait done, this style of portrait, it's absolutely beautiful and extremely sharp. And you will be able to see every single flaw that you have on on your face. Yeah. (laughs) Every wrinkle, every blemish, every birthmark or whatever you got going on. And because I'm in the sun and I've been in the sun, like I told you, like we didn't have sunblock growing up. Like I had no idea what that stuff was until I got into my adult life and I'm still really terrible at it. I tan really easy and I know I need to take care of myself. So I have, but like, yeah, I I look like I've been in the sun because I have. So yeah, like getting one of these portraits is (laughs) pretty intense because you're just like, your face like all right this is this is you yeah okay lady you are not 20 anymore and here (laughs) let me show you what you got (laughs) yeah i guess i'm mentioning that too because it was kind of liberating i'm like yeah you know what that is me that's what i look like and i'm okay with it yeah i've seen just very quick cell phone shots of them you're you're getting the the full scans of them later but they are beautiful works of art i mean if I'm not a portrait photographer at all, I've never taken a portrait. I can't imagine a situation where that would happen. But you know, I can appreciate taking my portrait. Portrait? No, not portrait. Yeah, with my surfboard on my head, that was kind of a portrait. Okay, I've taken kind of a portrait. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually taken a portrait. So I don't know, but I can. I you know, you know, a good portrait when you see one. And I think I don't know if tintype. You can take a bad portrait with a tintype. I don't know. I don't know. Well. I will let you know how that goes when I start. (laughs) (laughs) I'll put that to the test. (laughs) I'll stop gushing about it. I'm sure everybody will have to hear about this like next year at some point. And uh, just spoiler alert, I apologize (laughs) if I turn out to be even crazier. So, yes. Eric, Vanya, tell us what you've been up to, please. Well, I'm coming to grips with the fact that yet another winter is coming upon us in Seattle. The rains have started and it was just, it's just pouring lately. I want to go out to just do something. I can't. It's just, it's just pouring. I never, I don't do really all that well with winters. I kind of get into a, a bit of a funk and I'm hoping to avoid that this year. I don't know how, but you know, hey, why not? I do have a plan to get out and and shoot. I don't cross the Cascades in the winter to shoot where I normally do in eastern Washington. So I'm planning to shoot a little bit in western Washington. And I don't know exactly where yet, but there are some towns that I have kind of marked and maybe along the Canadian border since we can't actually go to the promised land right now. But you know, I can look at it from across that little ditch. That's my plan. So we, uh, <laughs> a little peek behind the scenes, I wrote in my in my show notes, I don't think we're going into lockdown, but a couple days ago, after writing these show notes, we're in lockdown again. So thanks, you motherfuckers. Wear your goddamn masks. So <laughs> I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm very not happy about this, but I'm also... <laughs> Bodhi isn't very Bodhi. happy about this either. <laughs> but hold on. A couple of days ago, we were invited to return to lockdown, and uh, we have, by compulsion, accepted this invitation and are in lockdown again. Thanks, guys. There we go. 
That's kind of the mood right now in Seattle. Uh, in Seattle, we're doing pretty well. We have the lowest death rate, I think, of any major city and the lowest... Congratulations. Yeah. We're doing very well in Seattle. It's the rest of the state and actually the, the rest of the country that are the whole COVID is a hoax thing. Everybody's getting COVID. So guys, put two and two together. Think about it a little bit. Maybe get your shit together. Uh, I mean, I don't think anybody's really happy about this. I mean, we've even seen some people that, you know, listen to the podcast, get it. And yeah, um, we're hoping that everything goes back to normal for them and they they get healthy and they get through it. It's really painful because I think a lot of people have opinions about what, you know, political people are doing. But really, when it comes down to it, there's like, you know, there's really sick people and, yeah. and this has been affecting people in a very intense way. And um, we just have to understand that it's not just about us it's yeah. it's about all of us yeah so it is. Well hopefully said. we can get past this soon. yeah and we will i mean there's a vaccination on the on the horizon we'll see how it works out other than going out of my mind i've been buying a lot of bulk chemicals to make different developers for dev party <laughs> that's kind of what i've been doing oh so you're like you're stocking up for quarantine with chemicals yeah some people are, are, are stockpiling toilet paper i've got a bidet and have <laughs> Apparently, all of this extra money around, so I don't need to buy toilet paper, and so I'm going to be buying bulk chemicals. Whatever. I'm buying a lot of bulk <laughs> chemicals for this. I've also been kicking around some zine ideas, and I'm not going to say too much about this now, but I do have a new zine coming out. It should be available by the time this episode airs, so check that out. Check out my Instagram feed for that. It is a different thing. It is not Conspiracy of Cartographers. Something else. Hmm. Yes. Ooh. Ooh. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, so you said you were going to start work out in, in January, but... It looks like that got pushed back a little bit. Oh, yeah. I'm not going back to work to probably March now. Like actual job work until mm. March. So that sucks. But, um, yeah. you know, I'll do what I can. All right. So one of my favorite parts, we are going to be checking our answering machine. And we asked some people a question on Ultra Lens, I'm assuming. <laughs> God, Vanya, I, I think you know this. You know we did. Yes. Uh, we asked the question this week was sort of a a question I've been thinking about quite a lot since getting rid of a bunch of cameras. I used to be a camera hoarder. So when you first get a new camera, this endorphin rush is amazing. You know, you, you open the box and you hold the camera in your hands and maybe you do an initial test roll and that happiness is like really, really intense. But that's just at first. What has to happen between you and the camera to make that happiness stick around? Hmm. Hmm. Vanya, would you like to push the button? Oh, yes, I do. Hello. No one is available to take your call. Please leave a message after the tone. Hey, guys, it's David um, at Curly Penguin on Instagram. And in response to you guys' question on what makes you want to keep shooting a camera after you get it and after that initial oohs and ahs, I would say it's uh, the way it feels and the way like it makes you feel when you hold it. Because I have a few cameras that like I'm like, oh, man, I want to go out and shoot. So sometimes it's lack of motivation that I don't go out and shoot or I have to go somewhere and like take pictures with it. But the fact of... It feeling nice in your hands and it being the way you want and it being that right tool is what makes it for me. Hmm. I like that. Hand feel. No, for real. Yeah. Like, uh, I was just talking about like the Nikonos 2. Yeah, yeah. Is one of the best feeling cameras ever. Okay. It's, I, it's just perfect. It's just yeah, perfect it for what hands. it is. 
It's a good camera. It's sturdy, yeah. feels good. So I totally get it. I mean, the funny thing is most of my favorite cameras are like extremely awkward to hold. <laughs> well, that's a whole other thing then. So it, for you, it's not hand feel. But I do appreciate a good... <laughs> I, never mind. Let's keep going. Mm, this is Cooper. Hello to you amazing, fantastic persons. Happiness? Well, a new camera has all the feels, but it's the body language that keeps me coming back. The body of a camera is definitive. The way the reel clicks after a shot, the smallest of buttons, the spin dials, and the framework. Cameras are beautiful. I get this feeling when I hold a camera. It's a tightness in my bones. It pushes me forward. Pushes me to want to do something. Anything. So I guess the happiness is in my bones. It's the way the camera feels in my hands. It's the way the camera moves me. So I think she just like took that like to the next level. Like she did. David started us off and then Cooper kind of like really brings it to like that inspiration that she's like feeling inside of her when she is holding the right camera in her hand, which is great. Yeah, it's like how it feels in your hands, but it's it, she, yeah, it's transferring it to her whole body. And that's really intense. I don't know that I felt that for a camera, actually. Really? That's really sad. Shut up. <laughs> you've have uh, you have a ama- you Okay, you've sent me a bunch of cameras like so Eric's like, "Oh, I'm not a camera hoarder anymore." You know why? Because he sent me like all his cameras. They're still his. I need to give them back because I don't know what the hell I'm going to do with all these. But, okay, so um, let's move on. Uh <laughs> Yeah, they're like I mean, like the Argus, the Argus, the Exactas, like Oh, my God, the clipper. Yeah, I do want the clipper back, but all the other ones are yours forever and ever. Okay, let's move on. Hello, this is Colin from Pennsylvania, and I guess for me, for that happiness to stick around, it would have to sort of become an extension of me. Some of the cameras that I have slow me way down, and they're a pain to use, so I only use those when I want to have that struggle. However, most of the cameras that I use over and over and over are the ones that become an extension of my body, and I just like the feel of some of my cameras, and when I have it in my hand, I feel empowered. I'm kind of freaking out a little bit. Okay, why? (laughs) Is it the Pennsylvania thing? It's just amazing. Well, no, 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 not that. No, no, it's just amazing to, like, hear people talk about that. Like, it's, it is, you know, their connection is so strong to, like, specific cameras. Yeah. I like that he was saying that the, the cameras that are like more difficult to use, he doesn't use unless he wants to go through that struggle. And that's, well, yeah. first, it is a very Pennsylvania thing to want to struggle with something. I grew up there. Yeah, I basically feel like if you live in Pennsylvania, you want to struggle. If you right? continue living there, yeah, it's because you want to struggle with where you live. <laughs> <sighs> Sorry, Colin, I grew up in central Pennsylvania. It was a um, interesting place. Hi, this is Jesse at JRenew on Instagram. I think what makes me really enjoy a camera after I have that initial new camera energy pass by is one, results, you know, if I like the photos it's taking, and two, ease of use and like how usable and carryable the camera is. Uh, If it has those two things, I'm pretty much hooked on it for the long term. That makes sense. It does. You got a checklist of things and both of those things are very important, obviously. I do kind of feel like I like the struggle though a little bit. Uh, uh, Just a little bit, not a lot. Like if it's too hard, then obviously I'm going to shelf it. But I do like to be challenged. Hi, it's Rob at rob.build on Instagram. And I think the key is that you have to have fun shooting the camera. It can be the most beautiful camera in the world. It can be the most technically perfect camera in the world. But if you don't have fun shooting with it, 
you'll never love it enough to make it a keeper. I think it's as simple as that. True. Very true. But sometimes things grow on you also. Yes. A little bit. Or I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> When it comes down to it, you got you got to just have fun. Yeah, right? I think so. Yeah, if, if it's a fun camera, you, you're going to have fun. G'day, this is Matt. Uh, ben underscore Matty on Insta. I think it needs to gain my trust first. After checking all the apertures, shutter speeds, and all the other functionalities of it. And that all happens, and I stick a roll in it, and it's still good, and it gains my trust. It sticks around. But if it does one little weird thing, and then I load film, and I'm unsure about it, I just can't trust it. It's happiness isn't there. Again, I like that. Yeah, <laughs> with the the having fun, the happiness part, I I really dig that. You know, we we do this hobby because we like to. That's kind of what it just comes down to. <laughs> Absolutely, I do like it how it's like a relationship, though. You're like fool me once. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It does need to gain your trust. <laughs> You're probably looking for a very romantic, beautiful story about keeping that magic going. Well, in my case, I bought some camera that I've had on my bucket list only to turn out that I spent more money trying to get them repaired or replaced or both. Yeah, not a good story. That's the worst when you get that one camera that you're so excited about and then you just hit like one (laughs) problem after another. Yeah, Uh, it it is. It is really tough. I I left this one in here because it doesn't quite answer the question but it is almost a little a reality check i guess in a way but also robert it gets better i guess i don't i mean i'm sure you've had cameras on your bucket list so you've definitely been a photographer for a while and i think you know that i think i think you know that that you know you've got ups and downs and the happiness can be there it just maybe you got to find the right camera maybe it isn't a bucket list camera you know maybe the cameras that we want aren't really the cameras that we need or the cameras that we can use My name's Kevin, I'm from Roseburg, Oregon, and over the years I've gone through tons of cameras, and one thing that makes the happiness stick around is when I can find some sort of rhythm with the camera, when it, you know, we synchronize, and it's almost like a dance, and each camera has its own little dance, from, you know, the step-by-step process of the RB is like ballroom dancing with some more rules, and then... Going out with a range finder, no light meter, relying on Sunny 16 is more of going to the club and winging it, you know? That usually keeps the happiness around. I love the analogy. (laughs) It's true, too. Yeah, (laughs) it is. It is. I I mean, I'm not a dancer uh, in any shape or sense of the word. I do like the idea of the RB with all the rules, and even large format with all the rules, being very much like a ballroom dance, like a very... Yeah, a waltz. A waltz, a very, something that's very regimented, mm-hmm. you know? I'm not a clubber, but I, I do love a good analogy. So Eric fucked up and lost some of our answers, and we're really sorry. Okay. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> So, how do you feel about answering this question yourself? Okay, please. (laughs) (laughs) Not well. I don't know. It's really hard to answer, honestly, because I, I, 
I think I'm still trying to figure it out. And not only am I trying to figure it out, I'm I'm trying to nail down like what I really want to shoot. I've got my water camera, but then what do I do with all the rest of the cameras that I have? You know, a lot of them are just like silly, like $5, like silly purchases that I've gotten did over the years. And I'm like, well, what do I do with all these? Like, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to use them anymore. Yeah, I guess it's just like hard to really decide. So I'll, I guess I'll do the best I can here. Okay, go for it. So I think the overall condition would probably be the first thing, which obviously is nuts because I literally just said that I like $5, like super cheap cameras. Yeah. Um, I did spend a lot of money on a water housing and that's kind of rare. Like I don't really like to spend a lot of money on anything. I'm pretty cheap. <laughs> you are. It is true. So yeah, like it's it was a big purchase for me, and I'm obviously I'm so excited about it. This is like such a huge thing, and um, it makes me really happy. It makes me feel like I'm kind of more fine focused on like what I want to do in the water, and I'm thankful for that. I guess I will say that like when you find that camera and it's just on, yeah, you it's brilliant. It's such a great feeling to get a camera, give it like a little clean, put a battery in it if it needs one, throw a roll in it. And when you develop it, there's no light leaks, there's no issues, the shutter's working fine. Like, oh my God, that is (laughs) obviously the dream. Right. But that's initially, that's what happens at first. How do you keep that going? I need it to fit into what I want to shoot, I think. Okay. And the way that I want to shoot. So like, for instance, Mm -hmm. you with your four by five and several adorable cases all neatly packed into a larger case, (laughs) Um, as much as it's entertaining to see you set up a shot, that's just not like, that's not how I'm going to shoot. And I don't think I'll ever be like that. That's madness. It is madness. (laughs) I tend to have all my cameras on the back seat or on the floor of my van. And when we're traveling together, most of your cameras end up on my floor as well. They do. You're a very <laughs> bad influence. So I think that they need to be sturdy. They need to be able to slide on the, fl- slide on the floor maybe just a little bit. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so that's why you go for things like the Mamiya RB67 and the Graflex, yes. you know, the, the ones that are made for war zones. I need them to be sturdy and they need to perform. And I need to be able to pull over and get a shot pretty quickly without having to like struggle too much with something. Sure, I get that. I don't mind taking my time and getting those shots. And we were shooting, I was able to do that a little bit. But I do like kind of that instantaneous, like I'm going to pull over, I'm going to I'm gonna get a few shots and, and then I'm out. Yeah. Be quick about it. <laughs> Before the locals are like, what the hell is this crazy lady? It's so weird. It was just, it's so weird sometimes, like when I roll up into town in my van. Yeah. I mean, I I didn't really realize I was going to be so, like, so so much of like an, like an eyesore, you know, it, it's not stealth at all. Okay, that is true. Yeah, you were in a very large van. It is not uh, stealthy. It's not at all. No. I should have like went with like a Ford Escort or something. (laughs) Maybe? I don't even think they make those anymore. That was honestly, you guys, that was like one of my first cars and it would catch on fire. It was awful. It was a terrible car. (laughs) Okay. So anyway, um, yeah, I I need it. (laughs) So I need the camera to be sturdy. I need it to perform really well. I need to be able to shoot with it quickly and it needs to not catch on fire as well. Okay. So. Four things, okay. I think. That's four things. You know, Great. Reasonable. Okay, okay. I think I can I think I can match that. All right. Tell us. Okay. Tell us, Eric. So for me it's actually kind of simple and I kind of base it on a theory I have for coworkers. So for me, 
cameras are like the people you work with if you have if you, if you still are lucky enough to have a job <laughs> <laughs> to have a good coworker, this person needs to have one of two qualities to make it really work right so you either have to be super fun to be around or be really good at your job one of those you don't generally have to have both of those qualities though you know it's nice it helps so if a person is super fun to be around that makes the day just go by it makes it really wonderful even if they're not really good at their job it makes the day fun it makes it fun to go to work on the other hand if this person is really good at their job isn't necessarily all that fun it's okay too because they're getting their work done and it makes everybody's life a little easier so for me cameras are like that they either have to be fun to shoot or they got to take amazing photos there's more to that though. So when I first started shooting the Mamiya RB67, I hated it. And actually I remember an exact moment when I said, fuck <laughs> this camera. It was in <laughs> southeastern Colorado near Picture Canyon. I was on a road and I was shooting a thunderstorm. Mm -hmm. Not a not a safe place to be. I had the four the four by five set up and there was lightning striking all around me. And I it was beautiful. It was a really beautiful scene. But what really messed it up was this RB. I I couldn't get it to work right. And it had on the lens, there's like a little knob that you can turn that that, that keeps the shutter open or something. I don't know what it does. But whatever it does, I had it set in the wrong spot. And I didn't know this. And so I blew a whole roll of film on nothing. And I realized that I blew a whole roll of film on nothing at that moment. Mm -hmm. I was like, fuck it. I can't do it. I can't use this camera. I hate it. And I thought, well, unless it takes some really good pictures. <laughs> <laughs> and then maybe maybe it'll it'll stick around. And so when I got home, I developed pictures and they were really good. And so I was in a dilemma. Like, what do I do? Do I keep this camera? Because it takes really amazing pictures. And so I talked to Vanya about it. And you kind of begged me to keep the camera. You kind of begged me. You kind of got a little bratty. And you kind of got you got a little defensive for the camera. I kind of did. Yeah. But, I mean, we weren't really that close. So really what was happening is you were being bratty about it. And I was trying to be like, hey, man, chill. You need to give this this camera another shot so i think that's that's <laughs> okay sure so that is probably the perfect combination whereas the camera has to to be you know fun to shoot and or take good photos also i need to have encouragement if it doesn't have one of those things <laughs> And I think that's where you come in. But really, I yeah. think it, it's a personal connection. That camera for me, I now have a personal connection with it. You know, there's a story behind it. And I tell that story I probably a lot. If you're listening for more than a couple of episodes, you've probably heard that story before. <laughs> that's what it is with the camera for me. And so it needs to be personal, but also yes. those one of those two other things. Other cameras I've gotten since then, they're, they're okay. And some of them are really great. But like, well, the, the rotating back Graflex 2x3 thing that we can't figure out what to call. I do have a personal connection with that camera now too, um, because of you again. Even though it's a pain in the ass to shoot, I've become very much in love with that camera. Yeah. But having those stipulations about it, it kind of scares me a little bit because I haven't developed that yet with the Chamonix 4x5. And that's a little worrisome to me because I did make that connection with the Intrepid. I'm still working on loving the Chamonix. So if uh, if there's anybody out there who has a Chamonix, maybe throw some encouragement my way. I'm, I'm just not... <laughs> I'm not feeling it yet. I want to, but it's just it's just not there for me. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, so maybe you should get one and then uh, coax me into liking it. No. no, I don't want all those little baggies. Remember, you have like a bag for each little piece. It's adorable and it's you're taking <laughs> very good care of it. But yeah. no. Okay. 
Oh, fine. No, I need something like old okay. that doesn't fit or doesn't like work a hundred percent of the time, just like almost a hundred percent of the time. That's what okay, I mean. so old and doesn't work a hundred percent of the time. Sounds like. <laughs> A couple of episodes ago, is it a couple? I feel like it was like last episode. No, it was a couple. Okay. A couple of episodes ago, we went on and on about the history of slide film processing. Just being an overview, we were a little vague on some of the details. This was certainly not because we were just winging it. No, we did try our best, of course. Um, at any rate, Dennis Atkinson, who is a listener of ours, wrote in to clear up some loose ends and... We thought that you would like to hear what he had to say. Yes, and here's my dramatic reading of Dennis Atkinson. (laughs) I don't know. Hi, Eric and Vanya. I really enjoyed your episode on Ektachrome. It took me back a few decades. I ran a professional E6 slide lab, a Kodak Q lab, in Buffalo for 20 years starting in the early 80s. Perhaps this would help you wrap your head around that process. Think of color film as three separate layers of photosensitive emulsion on a plastic base. One layer is sensitive to red light, one to green, and the other to blue light. Developing the film in the first developer converts the exposed silver halides in the film emulsion to metallic silver, just as happens in the black and white process. At this stage, if you were to put the film in a stop bath and then a fixer, you'd have a black and white negative, but we're not going to do that. So that really kind of reminds you of like the trichromes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that kind of really describes the process pretty well. Now there's more that he has to say. (laughs) So next comes the reversal step. That can either be done chemically with a reversal agent or by exposing the film to bright light. What we're doing here is exposing all of the silver halide that wasn't developed in the first developer. When he said this, I had a big question. I was like, well, I've developed E6. Vanya, you've developed E6. Yes. There is no step in it now where you take the film out of the tank and you expose it to light. And there also isn't a reversal step. You go from first developer to a wash to second developer. So I was like, mm-hmm. what the hell? So I asked him, what the hell? And he says, Codex process has a reversal bath that the film sits in for two minutes just before the color developer step. The film doesn't actually reverse until it hits the color developer. So the reversal bath is adding an agent needed for the actual reversal to happen later. The shorter, modern processes combine components of the reversal solution and the color developer into one bath through some sort of mad alchemy that appears magical to my ancient eyes. So, do you understand what he's saying there? Yes. Okay. Do you? (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) I, I mean, I do a little bit, but it's a little bit, like, over. And this is the hard part, because, like, okay, (laughs) we're a podcast, and we're trying to explain these things in, like, in a way that people are going to, like, really pay attention to and when it gets like super technical like this it's like sometimes i'm just like uh, (laughs) yeah i have a little bit of an add sorry guys (laughs) so for most of us if we're developing an e6 chemicals you know the ones we get from like arista or uh, cinestill basically it's a first developer wash and a second developer and in that second developer you have the reversal chemicals where 
uh, in the Codex longer version, that was a separate step. Yeah. And you were like exposing it to light and all that stuff. And right. you just don't do that anymore. You don't do exposing to light anymore. And so instead of exposing it to light, they have a chemical that gives it the same reaction. Uh, I really, I really like it that he took the time to like. Oh my god, yeah! Send us this because it is really neat to hear from someone that actually did this, like in a lab. Also, he still has his website up, and you guys, you gotta go check it out. It is a blast from the past. We will put his uh, website up, and it was spectrumslides.com. Uh, it is not there anymore, obviously. This is from the archive. And uh, we will put a link to that. It is very, very 1993, maybe. It's amazing, you guys. Definitely check it out. In Dev Party's past, we've developed E6 color slide film. You guys probably heard us fumbling through that at some point. If not, go back and find it, I guess. Yeah. My friend Gene sent me a box of Reversal Developer, and I've been bugging Eric for like a year about it. Yes. And I think we're finally going to do it soon. So not next dev party, but maybe the dev party after that one, we'll be doing black and white Reversal. So that will be really exciting. And that process, you actually have to pull your film out to expose it to light. So that's really fun. Yeah, I'm really excited about this. I have all of the ingredients that I need, except for, oddly enough, the developer. I don't know why, (laughs) but I don't have the developer. And for those who have done this kind of stuff before, I will be using uh, Ilford's method for this. And so I'm waiting for Ilford's paper developer. There's lots of other things to do, lots of other ways you can do it, but I'm going to be doing it the Ilford way because it seems easiest and you get to work with sulfuric acid. And honestly, why wouldn't you want to do that? All right, it's time for our guest. I'm so excited. So um, we have Megan Carson. Let's give her a call. She's a tintype photographer who shoots with a hundred-year-old view camera and travels around in her van she calls Marigold. It's a 1979 Chevy van, and it is fabulous. We'll definitely be asking her questions about that. So let's just give her a call. Let's go for it. How are you? I am good. How are you guys? Doing great. <laughs> this is Rosie. She's oh, she's hanging out. Oh my oh. goodness. <laughs> she's, she's a little red healer. Oh you know, my gosh. Oh insane demon dog. <laughs> Let's just get right into it. Tell us a little bit or everybody about uh, yourself and then how you got into photography? Well, I grew up in the Midwest. I didn't really grow up in like an artist type family. I was kind of the odd man out in that way, but I was definitely encouraged to make art from the time I could. I took a photography class in high school. I think it kind of helped me a lot with my uh, social anxiety to like put a camera between me and other people. And that's still something I struggle with and something that helps to have a camera as a barrier. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just always stuck with film until recently. So from age 15 till now, I was shooting film constantly. Yeah, I don't know. I just have always been making art and shooting pictures. So So most of your photos that you're sharing at this point, at least on social media, are tintypes. But Mm -hmm. prior to that, you were shooting film, like you said. But what sort of things were you shooting 
prior to getting into tintype? Everything. I've been traveling for a long time and I most of my backpack everywhere I go is cameras and film. So I would be that weirdo walking around with like four cameras around my neck <laughs> everywhere I went. Yep. And I, 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 th- I feel like I kind of like see in pictures when I'm walking around looking at stuff. I'm like, what would that look like in black and white? Because I don't shoot any color. So yeah. I kind of just shoot whatever catches my eye. And even if it ends up being not a good picture, it's still some like a memory of like, oh, yeah, that interested me because of this or that. I was looking through your website, Eric and I, and we came across the communal living portraits, mm-hmm. which, oh my gosh, they are so amazing. They're really fun. <laughs> we re- we want to know a little bit more about them. Well, I mean, like I said, I've traveled a lot. I've traveled pretty extensively over the last like 12 years. And I've spent a lot of that time making like a very large network of community of people, you know, whether I spent like 10 minutes or like set for 10 years getting to know these people, I really wanted to like take their pictures and document that larger community that I like have shared space with. And so I, a lot of those, most of those photos are not planned. They're definitely just like, Hey, can I take your picture real quick? And I can like tell a little bit what kind of relationship I had with each of those people just based on those photos alone. Oh, "Oh, that guy. I don't really even remember his name, but I had this memory of him and he's wearing that t-shirt. You know, it's just like, they're all very spur of the moment. I think I totaled like 150 photos in a team. Yeah, that's impressive. And I, last year I had a um, gallery showing of those. So I spent a year printing them pretty large and I had 115 in a room. Wow. And so you could like go in and just like be surrounded by the people that I'd spent the last 10 years with. So moving from that, what influenced you to take on Tintype? Like I said earlier, that like desire to do everything with my hands and Mm -hmm. actually be involved in every step of the process is like why I stuck with film for so long. Mm -hmm. And then I really wanted to just torture myself by (laughs) doing an even harder thing um no it's it's really it's really fun and it's it like really challenges me to let go a lot of my like perfectionist like ocg um make everything because i'll shoot 10 types out in the field all day and get nothing some days and i think that that is really difficult but is also really good for me Mm -hmm. to be like it's it's so much more special when you do get a good photo because you spent just all day and I'm like breathing ether and feeling weird. (laughs) And I'm like, I didn't get anything today, but that's okay. (laughs) Do you have a different approach to shooting a portrait on tintype than you do like film? I mean, I think yes and no. I think that especially with like the communal living portraits, they weren't planned mm-hmm. and because they're film. It's just like, so like much more of like a quick interaction. Oh, just stand there. Like, don't, you know, you can smile if you want, like don't feel like you need to pose, mm-hmm. take a picture. It's done. But with tintypes, it's, a lot more of a process 
and people have to stand or sit still for up to five seconds. It, it is a lot more planned. And so I think that alone makes it like a little bit different looking mm -hmm. when someone is like kind of sitting there for 10 minutes waiting for me to take their picture versus like a quick photo. I don't think that I intend for them to be a lot different, but I just think like organically, they just kind of like reflect the processes. Mm -hmm. I also think because I'm taking a lot of 10 types of people I don't know, there might be a little bit of a difference in the way people sit for me, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. like get photographed by a stranger versus a friend. Mm -hmm. You kind of just like your body language might be different. You spend a lot of time traveling while shooting. And Before this year. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that is true. That is true. Uh -huh. <laughs> Normally. Uh, yeah. And you seem to have a really good relationship with your van, Marigold? Yes. Yes. So how did you two find each other? <laughs> uh, well, prior to owning the van, I was like living out of my Subaru, which isn't the most comfortable or convenient place to live. I think that I knew if I was going to continue to travel full time or like mostly full time that having more of a home on wheels would be more sustainable. So I spent a lot of time looking for the right van which aesthetics are very important to me as an artist. Uh, my partner was very much against the idea of me getting an old van. Okay. <laughs> he was like, they're going to break down and they're going to have gas mileage, you know, and he was like, get a new van and like showing me all these ugly vans. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, no, I don't care if it gets nine miles per gallon. I, it's got to be cute. <laughs> and it's got to like be like an extension of me. We were living in Colorado at the time. We went down to New Mexico to visit some friends and we were like out to dinner with our friends. And I was like, Oh, I'm like, I'm looking for the right van. And they were like, Oh, our buddy has a van that you might like, maybe he'll sell it to you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And we drove up and there she was <laughs> like surrounded by marigolds. Oh. The person who owned her had like a garden and it was like all marigolds. And he like walked out in like a long robe, had like a big beard. And I was like, okay, <laughs> this is it. And I bought it and I made it about two miles and blew a tire and then it wouldn't turn back on. Oh, no. And uh, it's been, you know, it's been a journey since then. <laughs> it, it's a constant work in progress. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But when I'm actually traveling and living in the van, it's, you know, I could sleep in a Walmart parking lot and I close the curtains and it, I feel like I'm at home. It's very convenient and cozy. And I set my little dark room up right inside. And mm -hmm. then I'm, you know, it's like all self-contained. You did say that it's difficult to find um, the right camera for tintypes. So do mm -hmm. you have a similar relationship with your, you have a five by seven view camera, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say we have a similar relationship. Okay. I found that camera in a camera shop in Portland, Oregon called Blue Moon. Oh, yeah. Oh, cool. It's a uh -huh. really, really wonderful store. It has no labels on it, so I have no idea who made it. It looks a lot like a Kodak view camera, but it's got like weird hardware on it. I think someone handmade it wow. just Ooh. in the style of a Kodak. So that's really cool. I mean, I love my camera, 
but I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a fine camera. <laughs> it works. It's done me well. Mm-hmm. It's not like my van. <laughs> you know? When you're traveling and you're shooting, do you have like sp- certain locations, like specific locations in mind? Or is it kind of like driving down this road and seeing what's there? How do you how do you come about what you're, what you're shooting? Some of my trips are planned and some of them are absolutely not planned. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that people can't hear or see this, but I was going to show you guys. I travel with this very old paper map. Oh, nice. And I just I draw on it all the roads that I drive on. Mm-hmm. So I'm oftentimes trying to not re-drive the same roads I've already driven. So I'll look at this and be like, well, that road is going to nowhere, but I'll drive it because I've never <laughs> driven it. And so I don't know what's going to be on it. And so a lot of my traveling is is very like spur of the moment, like what feels good. Are you shooting film and tid types on the road? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely carrying around my film cameras everywhere because mm-hmm. that's, I can just take as many, not as many as I want, but a lot more. Yeah. yeah. And then when I make tin types, it's just so much more of a process. I can't be like parked on the side of a busy road or like mm-hmm. with wet plate, you have to expose the photo within a few minutes of making the plate. So I can't be like trying to take a photo down in a canyon or like mm. far away from the van. I have to be able to get back and forth from it within a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of limits where I can shoot. I think the hardest part for me about making tintypes is I'll like go on a really long, beautiful hike and be like, oh, I wish I could make a picture of that. Yeah. But I mm-hmm. Can't. I'm assume that's why they stopped. <laughs> well, yeah. You know, wet plate. They were like, "This is a pain in the ass." Like we <laughs> don't want to have to get back to our covered wagon in three minutes. <laughs> you know, we want to like be able to to explore and take pictures. Yeah. And so that that part is hard for me. But I I will carry around a film, at least one film camera, mm-hmm. yeah. so that I can like make still make pictures so when all of this passes what locations are you looking forward to i always go west mm-hmm. i'm definitely drawn to the like expansiveness of the west but like i was saying earlier i have this map and it's very full of lines on the west coast um and not so much on the east i tend to go southeast in the winter i have friends in florida and new orleans and i go hang out in the swamp Okay. If traveling overseas is not an option for a while, mm-hmm. there's a lot of the states that I haven't visited that I'd like to explore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I always, I just, I just always go back to the same places. <laughs> I'm open. I'm open to suggestions. I had plans this year for that. And, oh, really? Uh, I, I got a dog instead. <laughs> A good option. I was like, though. "Well, I'm going to leave the country. I can't get a dog yet." And then COVID <laughs> struck, and I was like, "Well, I'm not going anywhere. I might as well get a dog." <laughs> so here she is. So one thing I noticed um, is this something I've just been noticing kind of recently is that there are a lot of women getting into wet plate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like yeah. a lot. There's also just like a very so we have a um, group chat. Okay. For women and women in wet plate, because there is a group chat on Facebook called 
collodion bastards or something like that oh yeah yeah it's a lot of like i don't even know the words it's it's a lot of yeah Yeah. older white men Mm -hmm. um thinking that they are the best at everything yep and it's just not a very like it's a very competitive community on there and so we started this like all female group and we're all very encouraging of each other and supportive and we like share each other's work all the time and we're doing a lot of like art trades with each other and so i think that that alone like i don't know if that's like making more women tintype artists or if it's just like it feels really like inclusive and like good community to be a part of Mm -hmm. and that's really cool to see there's like 40 of us in that group wow that's amazing Um, yeah and it's just really nice to feel encouraged yeah instead Mm -hmm. of like competed against yes yeah i think the group is called like collodion bitches (laughs) nice i like it All right, so I think we should probably let you get to your life again. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on and talking with us. And uh, yeah, we look forward to hearing from you again soon. Yeah, thank Mm -hmm. you. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. It's nice to meet you. Good meeting you. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Bye Bye-bye. Even if you're really into old-timey Western photographers, you probably haven't heard of Julia Toole. She published little or she was alive, and not much more after her death. But her early 1900s photography of the Northern Cheyenne and Lakota tribes is unparalleled by any of her contemporaries. Unlike such photographers as Edward Curtis and Timothy O'Sullivan, who traveled to camps and reservations to photograph their subjects, Julia lived among them for years. She wasn't merely an observer. But she became close friends with American Horse, White Cow, and Strong Left Hand, legends in their time. Most photographers who worked with the Western tribes showed a great deal of empathy. The portraits by Curtis are touching and warm. The more candid scenes captured by O'Sullivan allow us to see glimpses into the lives and their their personality. But Julia's photos, while perhaps not technically as good as her more famous counterparts, exhibit a connection that is unrivaled for their time. Before we get to this, though, let's talk about Julia the person. Well, we don't really have much, but Julia Toops was born in 1886 in Kentucky. There's essentially nothing known about her early life, but at the age of 16, she married P.V. Toole, a school teacher who was 27 years older than her. You do the math. There's no information out there to explain what she saw in him or the nature of their relationship, but his plan was not to stick around Kentucky. No, he had applied for teaching work on the Indian reservations in the West. In 1901, shortly after they were married, they moved to the Chippewa Reservation in Minnesota, where they had a daughter. Shortly after that, they moved to the Sisseton Sioux Reservation in South Dakota and had another daughter. It was also there that she likely picked up a camera, and that was likely a Kodak Brownie. But it was in 1906, with her move to the town of Lame Deer, Montana, on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation, that her photography started to flourish. Few photos exist from her days before Lame Deer, but in a photo album she made around that time, there are very rough photographs of she and PV on the road to the reservation, the first images of their new home, and the people that they met upon arrival. That album 
simply entitled Brownie, shows their arrival at Lame Deer, as well as their first and second houses on the reservation. It contains the first photo of Strong Left Hand, as well as some very basic overview shots of lodges and of their new life. The photos are very rudimentary and were clearly shot by an amateur on a Kodak Brownie. At only 20 years old, with two daughters in tow, she took to her photography. At some point, she purchased an Eastman Kodak 8x10 camera and began shooting on plates. The Brownies took regular roll film, so this large format camera was a completely different thing. Her earliest plates date to around when she arrived at Lame Deer, and you can see her early struggles with it here and there, though I suspect her outright failures have not survived. Julia made herself a kind of a makeshift darkroom, and most darkrooms in the pioneer days were just that. Once her glass plates were then developed, she would put them in a wooden frame that held them in place for contact printing. She had a lot of contact printing. So she would set the plates on top of the paper and hold it near a kerosene lamp. She would then expose it to light for four minutes, which she timed with a small little wind-up clock. While other photographers like Edward Curtis focused their lenses upon the warriors and men, Julia, being a woman, spent much of her time with the women, photographing their portraits as well as their daily lives. She photographed White Cow, an older woman who also watched Julia's children. They had become quick friends. It was White Cow who first appeared in Julia's uh, the Brownie photo album we were talking about. White Cow must have introduced Julia to the rest of the women. Foremost among them was Strong Left Hand. During the battle against Lieutenant Colonel Custer, Strong Left Hand's husband was killed. She continued fighting and after the battle scalped the dead white soldiers, now three decades after the battle. Julia described her as a lovable, jovial old soul. <laughs> she also visited the Little Bighorn Battlefield in 1907, photographing the spot where Custer fell. In that time, his death was marked with a wooden cross surrounded by small stones for those who fell around him. One of Julia's earliest attempts at hand tinting was done on this photo. But she also photographed men. There was Chief American Horse, a frequent visitor to their house. He ended up teaching her the Cheyenne language by pretending he didn't speak any English. Dropped into an immersion situation, Julia picked up the tongue quickly. After two years of this, he finally admitted that he knew English, but understood that Julia would have insisted he speak it to her. Instead, she learned Cheyenne. Julia also took a wonderful smiling photo of Chief Two Moons. He had led warriors at the Little Bighorn fight, but by this time he had retired. He was an elder, though still very happy, statesman. Uh, my favorite of her portraits from this era is probably that of Red Cherries, a Cheyenne medicine man. He was, according to Julia, always making numerous calls to most every part of the reservation. Her photo, clearly taken on an 8x10 plate, captures red cherries in a full grin, perhaps even laughing. After developing the images, she had one more step she did. So this is an account from her youngest son. Yeah. We don't exactly know if there's like a certain term for it, so we're just going to explain it. <laughs> Julia would hand select a few images to glaze. She simply picked up the plates and placed them face down on a black shiny steel surface and then rolled them flat. Once they dried, they would loosen off the piece of steel and that would give it a glossy finish. So it was like a glaze, basically, that she would like lay on her images. Yeah. And this was described by her son, who was young at the time when he saw this, so we don't really know what is being conveyed here. So as we mentioned before, she had also experimented with hand tinting her photos with watercolor. This was obviously way before color film, and her creative ways to achieve these colors are something that's kind of unique. The hand tints in the beginning are a little off, but as time went by, she really seemed to hone her skills on this. You could see the progression of her getting better and better at it, definitely. There's 
a second photo album that is all just hand tints. And you can see you're getting a little bit better as it goes on. But uh, later, some of the larger format photos that she hand tinted are just beautifully done. There's one of White Cow and another of Strong Left Hand. And we'll be posting these on social media and all of that. But oh, beautiful work. So as a woman and mother myself, finding time to photograph is sometimes not an easy thing. I've really had to work hard to find time for myself. Julia Toole was that. She was a mother and she was, I mean, there is like this particular photo and you can't really tell because I think she was kind of a tiny lady. Obviously, this is like you know, back in the day. So everybody was really tiny. Um, <laughs> but it's a photo of her in the field with her Eastman Kodak 8x10 camera. And she's eight months pregnant. Yeah. So she's taking care of these children. She's pregnant. And also she was teaching at the time too. Yeah, she was. At the school. Incredible. So her photos like might not be perfect, but I, I definitely connect with them. There's definitely some feminine energy going on. And I feel she was able to connect to the Indian people in a way that I don't think most photographers, men at the time, could. She was trusted. Uh, she gained access to like very exclusive ceremonies that were forbidden to whites. In August of 1911, Julia was allowed to not just witness two controversial ceremonies, but was allowed to extensively photograph them. Her photos are some of the only ones that exist of the Mossum Dance and the Sun Dance. The origins of the Mossum Dance predate the Cheyenne people moving into Buffalo Country. This complex four-day ritual is also known as the Crazy Dance. I don't know which one I like better. I think I like Crazy Dance better. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> it's a sacrifice made specifically for the benefit of the person conducting it, but it also benefits the entire tribe. So for the details of the ceremony, and it's a really, really complex ritual, you got to see George Bird Grinnell's book, The Cheyenne Indians, War Ceremonies and Religion. Grinnell also attended the 1911 Mossum Dance, the same one that Julia was at, and used several of her photographs in his book. There are also photos of Julia's collection of the Sun Dance from the same year. The Sundance was so controversial that it was banned by the federal government. However, in 1908, it was altered by the Cheyenne elders and reinterpreted as the Willow Dance. She has some early photos of that one as well. A year after these ceremonies, her time among the Cheyenne people came to an end. PV was reassigned to the Sac and Fox Indian Reservation in Oklahoma, but they really hated it there. However, she did continue to shoot. They were so unhappy in Oklahoma that PV resigned, actually. Yeah. And there was like some sneaky way of <laughs> there was like a loophole basically in the system that he had figured out. So what happened was he re he resigned, but then reenlisted, applying to work on the Rosebud Reservation in South Dakota. The following year, 1913, they moved to live among the Lakota people. By this time, Julia, now 27 years old, had four children. Still, her photography only got better. While her work with the Cheyenne was documented on both the 8x10 and the Brownie, she seems to either have moved completely to the 8x10 or maybe that her smaller snapshots are just unaccounted for. It was here that Julia got her first model T. Ford. In 1917, they traded their horse and carriage in for a new touring convertible. <laughs> so how about that? How's that for a trade? <laughs> 
PV wasn't exactly mechanically inclined, so the driving and maintenance was left to Julia. These machines were temperamental, but Julia quickly learned her way around the car. From cranking the engine to start it, to fixing a flat in the middle of the prairie, she had it down. The roads of the time were carved out by tall-wheeled wagons, and the Model T, with its really high clearance, was built for such stretches. Julia used the car to cruise around the reservation taking photos. She'd strap her camera equipment into the passenger seat and set off for some remote locations. I love that. I'm sorry. (laughs) It sounds kind of wonderful. Actually, it sounds sort of like what we do. Yeah, actually it does. Yeah. While she always documented her daily life on the Rosebud Reservation, she took a more artistic approach to it. Her photos from this period remind us most of Walker Evans and Dorothea Lange, both of whom she predated. It's not really known who, if anyone, was Julia's inspiration. Her portrait work also took on a more artistic feel. One of her more famous shots, if any of her work can really be called famous at all, is Madonna on the Rosebud. It depicted a mother in a traditional Lakota dress holding a child in a cradle board. The focus is soft and the mother is posed. The background is an off-white and maybe the inside of a teepee? Comparing this to the several similar shots she took in 1907 of White Cow holding her granddaughter, which was essentially a snapshot, Julia was clearly evolving as a photographer. While she continued to take many candid location photos of Lakota men, such as John Thunder Elk, Black Bull and runs forward. She was also honoring great leaders such as Oglala Chief American Horse with beautifully shot sittings. And this is a different American Horse than the Cheyenne American Horse. In her photography of the Lakota, she was expanding her grasp of composition. One photo in particular calls to this, that of comes from Scout, fording a creek on horseback. The front hooves of the horse are in the water while the warrior looks across. On the bank above him is his teepee and several of his family members. One of these family members was probably his son, named Ben Scout. Julia photographed Ben in 1913 while he was wearing full warrior regalia. He was crouching and aiming a bow and arrow. A year after that, Ben enlisted to fight in World War I and was later killed in France. He was brought back to the reservation for a ceremonial burial. The Tools lived on the Rosebud Reservation until 1927 when PB retired. When he did, they moved to the Los Angeles area like everybody else, a place they visited frequently. There seems to have been very little output from her after she left the reservation, though perhaps those are lost too. After PV died in 1942, she revisited the Cheyenne and Rosebud reservations with her son, actually going back that same year. She was there for a little while and shot while she was there. Much of Julia's history is vague and incomplete. Nearly everything we told you comes from the book Woman and Warriors of the Plains by Dan Adland. While the first chapter is about Julia, every drop of information came through her son. The author uses the rest of the book to tell us about the Cheyenne and Lakota culture and history. While the book is profusely illustrated with Julia, work, all the photos are poorly half-toned and often very muddy. Still, this is the only way in which we can view them. Apart from the photo albums of the 6x9 Kodak Brownie shots, there's almost nothing available online. And apart from a few photos in a couple of museums in California, there's nothing on public display. Her original glass plates, over 200 of them, are owned by a Wild West painter who bought them off of one of Julia's sons, who probably stole them from the estate. It's a whole thing, because... 
technically she said that she wanted everything together. So those are in his private collection. And from what we have seen, he's very uninterested in letting anyone else see them, I guess. Yeah, he seems to regret the sale and doesn't really want to talk about it much. There's some stuff in some newspapers from the early 2000s. And I don't know really what's become of him since then. He didn't know he was buying stolen plates. And I don't know if they were technically stolen, like legally. And he sued them and they sued him. And that's such a, yeah, it's just weird. Yeah. But the bulk of her collection, including all of her prints and negatives is together and is for sale. It has been for sale for years. Julia's only wish was that her collection be kept whole and not divided up. This includes over 1,800 photos, negatives, glass negatives, and photography equipment, probably her camera. The seller is completely mum about how much they want for it, but reminds us that a mere 19 small prints of Julia's sold at an auction in 2009 to the tune of $21,000. Julia was wise in her young age. She was documenting a part of her life that maybe most people wouldn't see as extraordinary or just too busy to pick up a camera as much as she did. She was busy. She was raising children. She was teaching at the school alongside her husband, taking care of the home. And this is like some early 20th century taking care of home stuff. So not an easy thing. They didn't have like the appliances we had. And like we have literal (laughs) robots that vacuum our own floors now. It's ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) It is. (laughs) She even, and also one thing that we found out was that she even worked as a nurse during the influenza epidemic in 1918. Yeah, there's a wonderful picture of her next to her Model T with a mask on. She was wearing a mask. (laughs) What? So, come on. They knew about germ theory for well over 100 years now. (laughs) Julia documented all aspects of Cheyenne and Lakota life in a way that most really couldn't. Her attention to the details of everyday life is what makes her work stand alone. You can see that connection most through her photographs of Indian women. Unfortunately, we have a very limited amount of history of women in this time period. Mostly the stories are women being dragged out to the prairie by their husbands to live on the plains and figure it out. I think discussing women such as Evelyn Cameron and Julia Toole is important. These women were trailblazers. So while we were researching Julia Toole, we came upon this paragraph from the book, Women and Warriors of the Plains. It's hard to take one snippet of Native American life and kind of use it as anything other than a snippet, but we found this little snippet and we found it very endearing and kind of wonderful. Would you like to read it, Vanya? A Crow woman slyly related how the woman got her village to move when the campsite began to suffer from overuse of the ground, when the distance firewood to be carried became intolerable, several older women would simply march over to the chief's teepee and began to take it down. The rest of the village, seeing this dismantling, took it as a signal and followed suit. Soon, the crow band was on the march to a new location. (laughs) A wonderful little story. All right, guess what, you guys? We got a zine review. And I have actually been getting some zines. As have I. Yeah, I'm really happy. I I got one actually today. We're getting quite a number of zines now. Keep them coming. We are absolutely loving it. 
Uh, we have one to review this week,、mm-hmm. and this is one called Functional Japanese by Robert Burton. You know him as El Gato Magnifico on Instagram. So, this is a book more than really a zine.、Uh, it is about 100 pages long, and it's perfect bound. Over 100 photos taken with a Pentax K1000. And, okay. The photos are amazing, but in this man, it's got cats. It does. Lots of cats all throughout. Yeah. You know,、uh, honestly, it's, it's just great. It is really great. I think so too. It's very well organized. The quality of images are absolutely wonderful. He does have a wide range of grains, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. It's all black and white, and it's just, ugh. It's so beautiful. You really, I mean, it is a huge zine. There are a ton it, it of、is. photos. It actually took me a while to like get through it. When you're viewing black and white, there's something in your brain. It just changes. I think it's maybe like because you're not relying on color. The one thing I really liked was the way that the light played on certain objects or street views throughout the book. You can really kind of give a time or weather of any given day. It kind of opens. Opens your imagination to being in the in the scene in a specific, very specific way that black and white just、yeah. does. Robert is a longtime listener, and this zine encapsulates him very well. Yeah, I think it does. He did a color one that we love. Yes. And that was, it was very much him as well, very bright and very kind of erratic, a lot of double exposures. And this has a bit of that, but I think it's a, a side of his personality that, that really shows through in this black and white photography. And we're exploring with him through his camera.、Yeah. I mean, it, it really is, it really just like,、oh, it just makes me so excited about photography. Yeah, we'll have a link to this in the show notes, and you can find Robert at El Gato Magnifico on, on Instagram. The zine, though it's really big, 100 pages is only $8 on Etsy. And I mean, that's a great price. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> If you'd like to support our podcast, you can head over to patreon.comslash alterthelens. We've got bonus. Episodes, full length interviews, and a growing number of things. Yeah, for instance, we just put up another bonus episode about music that you hear in the podcast, and we've got the full interview with Megan Carter, as a, along with the full interviews of everybody we interview now. It's really exciting. There's a lot there. Yes. We really are excited to be doing this. Yes, we are. So head on、yeah. over to patreon.com slash all through a lens. And we've got three new patrons、Woo-hoo! to thank. Yes, we have David Wewell, Billy Sanford, and Jeff Greenstein.、Oh, you know, Stein? Ooh, is it Greenstein or Greenstein? Is it like a Frankenstein, Frankenstein thing? It's pronounced Frankenstein. I think it's Steen. I think it's Steen. And our featured patron for this episode is Alan Joseph Marks. Uh, you may know him as Alan Being Alan on Instagram. Yes, personally, thank you. I, I've, I've, I, love this, I love this guy's work. <laughs> yeah, he's great. He sent me his zine a while back and a book that he was、yeah. like, published in. And also, I know this is like, ridiculous, but his, the packaging that he had so s I like, okay, there's certain things that are memorable, and his packaging was great. I just really enjoyed it so much that I have a bot. I, I purchased a hundred of the same envelopes for my next zine, whenever that is. So it's literally、really? sitting in the corner of my office. Oh my God. <laughs> 
because I was like, oh my God, I love these envelopes so much. Okay, enough of that. (laughs) He has some amazing photographs here. Alan's definitely one of those people that are just like low-key, completely badass. Yeah. So if you do, you'll notice that his photos seem to be divided up into lines. And and I really appreciate the symmetry going on here. Um, his black and white are just like the shadowy stuff, the abstract stuff. Oh my God, I fucking love these. And I'm looking through and I've, I've, I've been following him for a long time. I've liked everything he's put out. And his color stuff is maybe using a flash. There's some blurred stuff. It's, I love his work. It's, it's something that every time I see something come up in my feed to, uh, of, of his come up in my feed, I, I'm just, I like it. I like it. His stuff is so good. And I wish he did more, I guess. <laughs> I, I mean, it's like, yes, please do more. Please do more. And he also has a website at alanjosephmarks.com. So follow this guy. He's doing some really, really wonderful work. And buy a zine if it's still available. It's called Now You See Me. So good. And thank you, Alan, for the support. We really, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And that's about all the podcasts we've got for you today. Yes, but we will remind you once again about the question for next episode. And this is kind of maybe of a seasonal holiday sort of question, kind of. Do you still keep or make family photo albums? And if you do, do they differ greatly from the albums that your parents or maybe your friend's parents made? Very good question. Thank you. We just thought of it right now. (laughs) If you'd like to contact us, we're at allthroughalens.podcast on Instagram. By email, it's allthroughalens.podcast at gmail. And we're at allthroughalens on Twitter. Vanya is at surfmartian. And Eric is at conspiracy.of.cartographers. Both on Instagram. And speaking of Instagram, make sure to hashtag your stuff, hashtag allthroughalenspodcast to be featured. We also do a Spotify playlist for each episode. So check those out and see what we're listening to. Just search All Through a Lens. You can also find our episodes on Spotify, as well as on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and wherever the hell else you find your podcasts. Subscribe and leave us a review. The music you're hearing now is from Last Regiment of Syncopated Drummers, which you can find at lastregiment.com. And thank you all so, so much for listening. We love you. See you in a couple of weeks. I'm Vanya. Yes? Do you want to go out and shoot? Fuck yeah, I do. Let's go. Gobble, gobble. (laughs) (laughs) Do they even do that? Do they say gobble, gobble? No, why do they say gobble? Why is that a thing? Do you know what a turkey sounds like? No. No, it's like, I don't know. It's like a bird, right? (laughs) I can't do it. I don't know. (laughs) It's exactly what a turkey sounds like. Like that. It's very close to that, yeah. (laughs) You're basically just saying gobble, gobble, gobble really fast. Gobble, gobble. Oh, God. You know what? Now it's getting gross. I don't want to say gobble ever again in my life. You doing okay? No. Can't talk anymore.